2 verse 1 to begin with, then we'll go back and read 16 through 18. He says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the, the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Now let's see what's led into that, back to verse uh, 16. For verily, of course, he, Jesus, took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to secure them that are tempted. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. So you can see how chapter 2 and 3 just are linked together, obviously. And I've told you many times, as you are aware, that chapter divisions do not necessarily mean division in thought by any means. And surely this is another example of that, because the writer is saying that we are to consider this high priest, which he has previously referenced as being merciful and faithful. And so this evening, I want to revisit the final verses that I said of chapter 2, verses 16 through 18 specifically. And if you recall, last week we considered the statement um, from the, from the uh, verses which, which state that, but we see Jesus, if you recall in verse 9, but we see Jesus in contrast to man, which is referenced in the previous verses, and how that God has put all things um, made, given him dominion over all things, talking about in creation, but of course man sinned and man failed, and he, he failed in that purpose to which God had made him steward over all things, and so now we do not see all things put under him, speaking of mankind, because there's the, as we looked in Romans, of course, as the whole creation groaneth due to man's sin. Uh, man, and, and look, this, this makes perfect sense when you stop and just consider it, that if man was the one who had been given stewardship over the entirety of creation, of God's creation, and man was to have exert and, and execute dominion over that creation, when man who is over all of that sinned, then the effect is that all the world and all creation fell under the curse of sin. Though the, all, though the animals were not guilty, so on and so forth, yet all of creation now groaneth because the one to whom stewardship had been given, man, is the one that failed, and therefore the curse of sin now is upon not only mankind, but also the world itself, and, and all created things. And so we are, we are aware that in verse 9, the writer is saying, but we see Jesus. So then he contrasts the fallen, failing uh, man and then says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, of course, again, humbling himself, and how that in that humbling, of course, he took on the form of flesh, though not sinful, he took on the form of flesh and even humbled himself to the point, as Philippians says, of course, to the death of the cross, as we know, and so we, we understand that there's a contrast that is being made between men, mankind or men and then, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he willingly took on him the form of a servant, manifesting himself in human flesh. And what's more, as we discovered through this chapter, the writer helps us to understand the necessity for Christ to come in the flesh that he might be our mediator. And so in this chapter, we have seen where since man failed in the purpose for which he was created, meaning stewardship over the world, as God had, had in, commanded him to take stewardship, and we see that man failed, of course, in that purpose. The Lord Jesus Christ, again, was manifested in the flesh as a man that God's purpose be fulfilled in and through mankind, but not sinful mankind, but rather the very Son of God, who was, again, when you think about the, the hypostatic union of Christ, that he was fully God and fully man, which is beyond our understanding, it's beyond our comprehension, but we, we'll look more into that in just a few moments. 
but yet that, that there is not, it's not that he was 100% man, 100% God. No, he was fully God and fully man. So he had, he, he never forsook his deity. He is God, but yet he humbled himself in taking on the form of a servant in the flesh. And again, I want to remind you because the, you come across some passages in Scripture to where if you do not read this properly, you will not understand really what's being stated because we know that, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always been um, one divine, eternal being, but yet coexisting or, or uh, revealed in, in three distinct persons, not just a revelation of one being, but I'm saying that the in Trinitarian monotheism, which is what we would embrace, most of us at least, hopefully all of you, that we believe, of course, that there is one God, but yet there are three distinct divine persons of this one eternal Godhead that is. And so that being said, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always been and they've always been in unity, one with e- each other as one eternal Godhead. And again, we have to compare that to because that is beyond our understanding and comprehension. And so we recognize that there is no way that we can say that is like this or that. No, the Godhead is unlike anything to which we can consider or imagine. And it's beyond our understanding, but yet he is. But yet it is still the truth. And we receive that knowing that this is true as declared in Scripture. So Jesus has always been. He was not created but yet he manifested himself in the flesh. That is the humbling of which Scripture speaks of. He humbled himself, taking on flesh, that then in his death and resurrection, God might exalt him in a glorified flesh, which he did not possess in eternity prior to his manifestation. So now God the Father exalts him in a glorified flesh above all others, that the name, the person, the power, the, the very authority of Christ Every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we understand that this person of Christ has always been, but yet was manifested in the flesh. And so this is something that took place in time, that God, in the fullness of time, birthed his son into the world through, of course, Mary. And so we understand that it was necessary for Christ to come in the flesh and that God's purpose be fulfilled. For this to be accomplished, this is what was necessary. Look at verse 16 with me now. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Christ did not come again in the form of a heavenly creature, but rather took on him the seed of Abraham. He came in an earthly manifestation of earthly flesh. Philippians 2, 7, I referenced a moment ago, but made himself, Jesus made himself of no reputation and took a upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So again, the likeness of men is not talking about sinful nature. It's talking about the human flesh. So again, this has to do with the, the, what would be theologically referred to as the hypostatic union of Christ, that again, full, fully God and fully man. And so you, that's again something we cannot wrap our heads around literally, but yet still true. So in these next verses... The writer explains in Hebrews that this was not only important that Jesus do so, but it was imperative. The verb took is used twice in this verse. Notice it says, for verily he took not, and then it says, but he took. And both times it is the same word that is used. However, in this verse, it has both a negative and positive context or or, or use. It not only means that he did not come in the form of of angels and that he did come in the form of man, but the verb in the Greek from which our word took is translated it means to take hold of or to grasp. And so, unlike the fallen angels who are condemned to eternal damnation with no way of escape. Remember, there are, there are fallen angels. In the scripture, Paul refers to them as the elect angels. 
of God, which did not fall. And we understand that those fallen angels, there was no means for them, no provision made for them for redemption. And again, that's one of the interesting things I mentioned last week to you, if you recall, how the scripture says, but the angels long to look into these things concerning redemption. Well, the reason for that, it's not only because God is great and awesome and good and mighty and merciful and gracious, but it's because they're aware that there was a whole sect of angels who fell and there is no provision for them. They can never be restored. They can never be redeemed. And yet then you have this fallen mankind in his sinful nature that God has made provision for in Jesus Christ who humbled himself not as an angel, but humbled himself as a man in the likeness of man that he might redeem such fallen men. No wonder the angels stand in wonder. No, man, no wonder they're in awe as they consider that God mercifully and graciously provided for man this redemption that fell after the angels to whom he provided no redemption for. And they're forever in this eternally condemned state. And so we understand that he took grasp and he took hold. And so Christ came in the flesh of, of mankind to lay hold on man and rescue and redeem him. So what does it mean that Christ took on him the seed of Abraham? He did not take on him the nature of angels, but took on him the seed of Abraham. Well, not only did he take upon himself the flesh, but he as well grasped it. In other words, Christ is Lord over heaven and earth, but he also produced lordship over his own flesh. And that is demonstrated throughout Scripture. He was not in sinful flesh. We'll deal with that in a moment. But number one, we see that he ruled and reigned over his flesh because we could never rule over our own. You know, as fallen sinful mankind... We do not have power over our own flesh, not the sinful nature of our flesh. It doesn't mean we have to do everything that we might desire to do, even as unregenerate men. It does not mean that man is totally unbridled. God gave us a conscience and written, has written the law in the sense of even in the conscience of men to know what is really right and wrong. And yet the reality is that man, even bridled, still cannot really change his own desires. Even if he can maybe, even if he can maybe, uh, hinder some of his own actions or maybe even turn from some of those sinful actions, he can never actually change his own desires. The sinful flesh of mankind, that sinful nature is inherent within man. And so Christ ruled and reigned over his own flesh. And in John six thirty eight, he says this, for I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And that was something that he accomplished. That wasn't something he just said, I'm trying to do this. No, he accomplished that. The Lord Jesus manifested this as well in his sacrificial suffering and substitutionary death. In Luke twenty two forty two, 42, Jesus prayed. You know this verse. Father, in the Garden of Gethsemane, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. But what he say? Nevertheless, nonetheless, not my will, but thine be done. Now, the will here is not talking about Jesus was saying, I really, I really, Father, don't want to do your will. No, he's saying, my flesh does not want to suffer. My flesh does not want to die. The flesh naturally wants to self-preserve. But nonetheless, above and greater than the even self-preservation of one's own flesh is my desire for the will of the Father to be fulfilled, and I came for this very purpose. So there was no, there was no argument or contention taking place here in the sense of, should I, should I not? That's not at all what's being stated here. But we see the humanity of Christ expressed here, while we see the deity of Christ, who is the very Son of God, who is able to do what we cannot do, and that is rule over even the own desires, even if they're not sinful desires, but regular, even the regular desires of mankind, even that of self-preservation. So the Lord Jesus Christ was obviously in complete control over his own flesh. He was, not able, or he was able to deny himself, that is to say, the appetites of the flesh, 
that the will of the God, or the will of the Father, God the Father, be not hindered. And John 4, 31 through 34, we read the account where Jesus is with his disciples. It says, In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him out to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. So while they are concerned about the physical well-being and welfare of Christ living in this flesh, Jesus says, what you don't understand is all of those things are secondary. Primarily is the purpose I have is to fulfill the will and purpose of my Heavenly Father. And this is my sustenance, even says. This is what, this is what I, I feed on. This is what sustains me is the Father's will. So it's not even about the physical uh, sustenance that, that is necessary for life, of course. We also see this truth manifested in the temptations of Christ in Luke 4, 1 through 12. And uh, let's just turn there for a moment. I will, we'll just read some of these passages. I wasn't going to do this, but I think it's important because I also want to go to Genesis as well after we read this and show you the connection uh, between this. And I've, I've shown you this before, but if you look in Luke chapter 4, this, of course, is when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And tempted here, by the way, we're going to deal with this in just a moment, what this means. But let's look at what it says in verse 1 of chapter 4 of Luke. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted of the devil. Now let's stop for a moment. Because we read of three temptations that are specified in the Scriptures there. But how many days was he tempted? 40 days. For 40 days he was tempted. But yet there's only three temptations that are actually specified. And there's a reason for that, I think. And I'll show you that in a moment. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. Jesus answered him, saying, is it, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Oh, notice what Jesus says. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? My meat is to do well him that sent me. Here again, he's emphasizing that even after having not eaten for 40 days, he says to Satan, he says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And then he says in verse 5, the devil taking him up into a high mountain showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, all this power will I give thee and the glory of them for that is delivered unto me and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. Now this is a, a quote, of course, uh, from Psalm 91, uh, verse 11. And he goes on to Jesus answering, said unto him, verse 12, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So here you find Jesus, is, there's three specific temptations listed. Now let's go to Genesis chapter 3 for a moment. Just keep those in mind. And then turn to Genesis chapter 3, because I want to show you something that ties directly into the temptation of, of the Lord in the wilderness and why this is even recorded in Scripture and how our Lord, of course, responded to such. If you go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, and when the woman saw that the tree was, well, let's back up a little bit. Let's go to verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God knoweth 
God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now hold your finger there for a moment. Hold your finger in Luke chapter 4, and then look with me in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. John tells us, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, one, the lust of the eyes, two, and the pride of life, three, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now let me, let me show you why this is important. Satan tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden, and how did he tempt her? First, lust of the flesh. Let's go back to Genesis 3, 6. It says, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's lust of the flesh. Notice the next statement. And that it was pleasant to the eyes, that's lust of the eyes. And then three, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, that's the pride of life. Look at the temptations of Christ in Luke chapter four. Ready, let's just hit on these again quickly. The lust of the flesh turned the stones to bread. Why? Because he was hungry, physically hungry. Lust of the eyes. Behold, the kingdom of the world. It's in my power, Satan said, to give whoever I will all here. And if you will bow to me, all shall be thine. That is the lust of the eyes. He's showing him, saying, look, Jesus, look out here at everything that can be yours in the flesh. I have the power to give this to you as you are in the flesh. Now, Jesus is Lord over all, and we know that. He is the very Son of God, but yet this is still the temptation. Then the third temptation, the pride of life. He took him to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, and he said, cast yourself down, quoting the Psalms, that you would not even dash your foot except an angel prevent you and care for you, right? That's what he's saying. And he, here's, here's the pride of life. You say, how is that the pride of life? Satan is saying, if you really are who you say you are, prove it. Prove you are who you say you are. And here you have the pride of life. And then John tells us that we are tempted in these three areas, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And in that specific order, you find Genesis 3, 6, that Eve is tempted. In Luke 4, Jesus is tempted. And then we are tempted in that same fashion. Now, here's the beauty of it. As man, we with Eve and Adam will fail every time. But we have a merciful and faithful high priest in the Lord Jesus Christ who was faithful in all temptation and is able to secure us as well. He's able to aid us. He is faithful to hold us up and prevent us from ruining ourselves due to such temptation that we otherwise wouldn't self-destruct. So these are the same temptations. In this first temptation, the lust of the flesh that Christ experienced, that being the appetite of the flesh, Jesus proved he was Lord over his own flesh. He as well further proves that his meat is the will of the Father. Again, he says it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So here we see that Jesus literally ruled and reigned over his own flesh, which we could not do. Eve was not able to do it. Adam was not able to do it. We are not able to do it. But Christ demonstrated that rule and control and power over his own flesh. Now, second, he took our sin upon himself and became the atonement because we could not. In John 1, 29, we read, The next day John the Baptist seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, as believers, of course, he's speaking, who did no sin, meaning Jesus did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, 
who when he was reviled, reviled not again, talking about the cross and, and prior to the cross, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He committed himself to him that judges righteously. Who, verse 24, his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. So we are cleansed and healed through the suffering and death of Christ spiritually that we might live unto righteousness. 1 John 4, 9 through 10. And this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or atonement or atoning victim for our sins. So Christ did what we could not do. He not only was Lord over his own flesh, but where man had already failed and man is already condemned because of his unbelief, we find because of this, man does not even have an opportunity to atone for his sin. He is, man is born and lives in unbelief, inherently sinful and wicked. But Christ came as the propitiation, the atonement for our sin, that we might be made partakers of his righteousness. Again, I love this passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he, the Father, hath made him the Son to be sin for us, the sinner, that who knew no sin, the Son, that we, the sinner, might be made the righteousness of God in him, the Son. And so Jesus literally took our place, literally. Not just he died for me, that's true, but it's literally that God judged Jesus as though he were the sinner, though he was not, that he might pardon us and receive us as his sons, as righteous sons, though we were not, because Christ literally took the place. Again, I've often stated it like this to you, and I think it's very simple to understand this way. Christ received full wrath and judgment of God, no pardon, that we might receive full pardon from God and no judgment and wrath. So he literally took our place. Not just he died for me physically. No, he literally took the wrath of God upon himself. Isaiah 53 makes this clear. Throughout scripture we find this to be true, um, that this is the case. Verse 17 of Hebrews 2. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. This verse gives us some wonderful insight to the office of our great high priest. He says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brother. Now, we, we've already dealt with this in our previous studies. I, I'm not going to belabor this, but I want to point some things out that I have not yet pointed out in this study. And these are just things that are clearly taught to us in Scripture, but it's just reminders of what is being stated here in this text. It behooved him to be made like unto his brother. And so the, writing, the writer is explaining that it was necessary for Christ to be made like unto his brethren in all things. He was born of a woman. Matthew 1.23, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Remember Genesis 3.15, the protevangelium, the first mention of the good news, if you recall, that uh, when Eve is, is and, and Adam and Eve and, and Satan are all being judged because of sin, if you recall, in the garden, and the Lord says, uh, to Satan, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. Talking about, of course, ultimately the cross. But yet we see as well that this is the mention of the good news that Christ would be, the, the Messiah would come through a woman. And that's what's being said here. He lived among men. John 1.14, you know this verse. We know, in fact, to again elaborate upon what we've already studied in chapter 1 of e Hebrews and uh, Colossians and, and, and John's gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word. 
The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. But then you come to verse 14. And the Word was made flesh. Here it is. Made, not meaning created, manifested in the flesh. The eternal Word, the eternal Son of God, manifested Himself in the flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Third, He knew what it was to be hungry. In Luke 4, 2, we've read this a moment ago. Being 40 days tempted of the devil... And in those days, he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. Jesus, listen, don't don't miss this. When Jesus was tempted and did not eat, he was hungry. That's not a sin to be hungry. That's just natural that men are hungry when they don't have food, they get hungry. And so he experienced hunger just as we experience hunger. He also knew what it was to be tired in Mark 4.38. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they wake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? I'll never forget this. Years ago, in, we had a VBS, and I was teaching the kids. And there was a four-year-old, I think he was at the time, and then there was up to 12-year-old or so in, in, the, in the group. And I asked a question when I was dealing with this passage of Scripture, and I asked myself, how was Jesus tired? And I had people, a few raised their hands, and... Or, um, or I said, why was, uh, actually, uh, so let me read this again. And they wake him and say to him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? He was asleep on a pillow. I said, why was Jesus asleep? I said, why was Jesus asleep on a, on a pillow? And I had people say, well, and they started giving all these answers, right? And even I think some of the adults started speaking up. And this four-year-old boy raised his hand. He said, because he was tired. <laughs> and I said, that's exactly why he was asleep on the pillow. Now, we know God was working providentially through this, but he was asleep because he was tired, That's why he slept. It's really that simple. He experienced weariness in that regard physically, as do we. He grew tired. Now, you'll never find him asleep in the synagogue. Just a side note. In other words, you have no excuse to sleep while we're gathered in fellowship. That's what I'm saying. But he did sleep when he was tired and he was in the ship. He knew what it was to be tempted. Luke 4, 2, he read this a moment ago as well. Being 40 days tempted of the devil. So he knew what it was to experience temptation, and then he knew the burden of sin, although he never sinned, in 1 John 3, 5. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. And this is what we refer to, as we'll look at Hebrews four fifteen as well, as the impeccability of Christ. There's two schools of thought here, of course. I totally embrace that of impeccability of Christ. It's referred to as the impeccability of Christ or the peccability of Christ. And the arguments that are made or the questions that are asked would be these. Was it that Jesus could have sinned, but he did not sin? In other words, he exhibited this control. Or is it that Jesus could not sin? Well, Jesus could not sin because there is no sin in him. Remember what James says. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. The whole point is, the temptation that Jesus experienced in the wilderness was genuine temptation, meaning Satan was doing everything he possibly could to cause Christ to give in to what he was laying before him. Here's the difference between you, me, and then the Lord Jesus Christ. We possess a sinful nature. He did not. So there was nothing that was put in front of him that within him, nothing in him longed for that which was put in front of him. Even though he was hungry, There was nothing in him for one moment that caused him to desire 
temptation of Satan to turn the stones into bread. He did not want to do that at all. Now, we would have been tempted to do that, meaning we might would have considered that or even done it if it were possible for us to do it. But there was nothing in him that yearned after that. So there's this impeccability of Christ. It's not only that Jesus did not sin, though that is true, but he could not sin because of who he is. Remember, let me say it to you like this. And this is going to sound a little strange at first. I've said this to you before. There is one thing that God cannot do. And that is that he cannot act against his own character. He cannot deny himself. Did Paul not say that? If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. So God cannot deny himself, meaning he cannot act against his own character. He cannot act against his own word, which is a, de- which is a declaration of his character. So that's not saying there's something impossible for God. It's saying, no, if he could do that, then he would not be God because God is impeccable. He cannot sin. And to act against his own character or his declared character and person would therefore be to lie or to sin. And God is not capable of doing that because he cannot act against his own character. So again, this isn't limiting God. It's defining the truth of who he is. Remember, again, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is said, once in Isaiah and once in Revelation, that God is holy, holy, holy. This is the essence of who he is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, holy, holy, holy. So everything that he does exudes from the truth of his holiness. He is set apart unto himself, and he is holy. And everything he does is holy. It's not it's holy because God does it. It's that everything God does is holy because of who he is. And so it's not that God is able or does take things that are not right and and they make them right because he does them. No, it's that he only does that which is righteous. He only does that which is holy because to do anything other than that is to contradict his own character. So the Lord Jesus came in the flesh that he might identify with man. He took on the form and likeness of, uh, of sinful man without the sin. And we know that he refers to us as his brethren. He knew exactly what it was and how it felt to be human while being God. And he experienced the same desires of the flesh as we do, yet without sin, because he possessed no sinful nature inherently. He was not sinful and possessed no sinful nature. Hebrews 4.15, the writer goes on to say concerning this very truth. For we have not a high priest. That's what we're looking at. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. Is that what we just read in verse 17? And now we see in chapter 4, verse 15. For we have not a high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. It does not say, yet he did not sin. Though we know he did not sin. He is without sin. That is a huge distinction between just saying, oh, he was tempted just like us, but yet he did it without sin. No, yet he is without sin. So he did not sin, but he did not sin because he is without sin. And so that's making that distinction, again, I believe, between the impeccability and impeccability of Christ, the arguments that are made. Because it's not just he did not sin, though Scripture declares that, it's that in him is no sin, the Scripture says. In him is no sin, and he is without sin. The Hebrew writer continued, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. We are reminded of the humanity of the Old Testament high priest in the book of Hebrews as well. In Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 3. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason thereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. So it's saying that all those men that were of the high, the high priests that were of, of 
the Aaronic priesthood or, or the Levitical priesthood, that they offered, of course, the sacrifices representing men to God, and that they offered gifts and sacrifices for sins. But, of course, Christ is that great high priest, the merciful and faithful high priest, who is all the other priesthood was just a shadowing of the true faithful, merciful high priest, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the writer says he's a merciful high priest, and it's through his understanding that he extends his mercy. He represented the ignorant, those who do not understand or just don't know. But then he also represented the rebellious, those who willingly transgress and trespass. They know, but they continue in their own way. It's because he identified with us that he not only understands, but is able to show compassion on us and towards us. We are both ignorant and rebellious in reality, yet our faithful high priest understands. And he, that brings us to that. He's merciful and he's faithful. And this means that he is trustworthy, of course. He is faithful, full of faith. He is faithful to his office. The Old Testament high priest, even in his understanding of man, was still a man marked by sin himself. Even with the understanding, he still could have grown weary of both the ignorance and the rebellion of those he represented. We've looked in 1 Corinthians 13, of course, even in recent weeks in Colossians, in referencing, of course, um, husbands loving their wives. And you recall with me, we looked at 1 Corinthians 13 about uh, uh, this agape that is spoken of and how this is God's love and this is a demonstration of God's love and how that, that we are to examine ourselves comparatively to this love, but yet understanding this is God's demonstration of love toward us, not something we can produce or we can do of, uh, or demonstrate on our own or of ourselves. And so here we see as well that in that love in 1 Corinthians 13, if you remember, it does not hold resentment. One of the statements that it means that it's not resentful or it doesn't hold resentment, and it does not hold against us. Now, we're talking about believers, those who've received this love of God in Christ. God is not keeping a tally book concerning marks against us now and, and waiting just to beat us over the head. Of course, there's chastening of the Lord and there's correction, but it's all in love and out of love. Hebrews 12 tells us, so we understand that this is not something done in retribution or something done that is punitive in nature, but rather that which is loving that God correct us and that God chasten us and that God not let us just go our way. I remember my kids growing up years back um, when they were young, and I would, I would discipline them, and I would tell them when I corrected them many times, I would say to them, I said, look, I love you too much to allow you to continue in this. I love you too much to allow you to do this. It was my love and concern for them and my responsibility as their father to discipline them out of love for them, love for God and love for them and love for truth, that I would correct them and point them in the right direction to help guide them into the right way. Doesn't mean they always listen. Doesn't mean I always hit the mark either. But yet the reality is that that was the intent and purpose behind it, that they be corrected and instructed. And so we have a faithful and merciful high priest, but he's, he who loves us, God the Father loves us and has provided Christ for us in this, in this respect as the faithful high priest, is not holding against us. And, and, and his love for us is not resentful or, or it's not that which is seeking retribution, but rather it is that God is forgiving and, ch and will chasten us and correct us out of his love. But the high priest is the one who ever liveth to make intercession. His very existence or his very life is my intercession. Again, that doesn't mean Jesus is up pleading with the Father on my behalf. It means, again, that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He does not have to stand up to say, Father, uh, yeah, Truman sin, and I, I need you to forgive him. No, the presence of Christ at the right hand of God the Father in whom the Father is well pleased is the intercessor. 
And his very being there with the Father is my confidence that I have one who ever intercedes for me. Meaning that as long as he is with the Father, as long as the Father is pleased with him, which is eternally, then guess what? I'm interceded for eternally. So God doesn't have to mark up things. He will correct and chasten and guide us and teach us in righteousness, but it's out of love for us that he does so. And so this faithful high priest is faithful to represent us in his very being with the Father, and he does not grow weary in that. That was the point. Whereas high priest, even think of Moses. Do you remember Moses, who, of course, was a prophet of God? Jesus referred to him as the greatest of the prophets, if you recall. And yet, you remember what Moses said about the people? One moment he's grieving over them, the other moment he's saying, Lord, just kill them. <laughs> just do away with them. You know, just get rid of them. And so that's how Moses approached this. Aren't you thankful that's not our high priest? Aren't you thankful that our high priest does not grow weary with us? He does not, he's not resentful of us, but rather he is interceding on our behalf. And he, we are complete in him, as Paul says in Colossians. So we have this high priest who's not only merciful, but is well faithful to his office. In 1 John chapter 2, 1 and 2, and we'll be finished. My little children, these things write unto you, John said, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for us only, but also the sins of the whole world. So if any man have sin, I write these things that you don't sin, but if you do sin and you're going to sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Isn't it interesting that John identifies him here as Jesus Christ, the righteous? You know why he says that? Because he's talking about our sin. He's saying, oh, you sin? Well, there's forgiveness. Confess before him, right? If we confess in 1 John 1, 9, just a verse or two before this, he said, if we confess our sins as believers in Christ, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we're going to sin, and that's not an excuse, it's reality. And so we do sin, we're going to sin, but the truth of the matter is, it is only because we have a faithful high priest who intercedes on our behalf, who's made the atonement, he's the propitiation for our sins, that we now have access eternally to the Heavenly Father based, again, not on how serious we are about our sin or not how, 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 how much stricken with grief-stricken we are about our sin. Though these things should be, we should come with a contrite spirit and heart without question. But God never receives us on the basis of us. It's on the basis of the righteous advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful high priest. But we see Jesus who is merciful and faithful high priest. He both understands our weakness and is faithful to show mercy. When we have had no way to reconcile ourselves to God the Father, he sent his son to reconcile us unto himself. And remember the word reconcile, reconciliation. These components of salvation, when I say salvation in this respect, I'm speaking of the theological definition of salvation, including all of these components of salvation biblically defined as deliverance, of redemption, being, or being redeemed to God, or bought back, purchased to him, of justification, that we are set into a right relationship with him, of reconciliation, that God has removed the hostility that existed between us and him, and that's through the making peace through his cross, he's reconciled us to himself, the scripture speaks of. That's the removing that hostility. And then, of course, sanctification, which is not just taking us out of sin or taking sin out of us, but it's actually consecrating us to himself, and then as well, glorification, which ultimately will be realized in eternity as we are in a glorified body, as is our faithful and merciful high priest. So we have a faithful 
and merciful high priest. And so next week, Lord willing, we're going to move into chapter 3, which we read this evening for that very purpose to show you the connection, in which, wherefore, holy brother, because of all of this that's already been stated, partakers of the heavenly calling, we who've been redeemed, we who've partaken of the Spirit of God through the provision of God made in Christ on our behalf, consider the the apostle, not an apostle, the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Consider him. Why would we not consider him in light of all of these truths and all that he is? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you as